welcome to the Coach's Edge podcast dedicated to teaching, sharing, and learning the game. I'm Steve Kramer of Kramer Basketball, and today we welcome Chip Clark, certified high school official in the state of Florida, as well as a certified junior college official. And today we talk about how coaches can improve their relationship and communication with officials during the game. And we talk a lot about the rules of the game, often misunderstood rules and misconceptions that coaches and players and of course fans may have from verticality, displacement, reaching, the block charge call, and so much more. We're going to gain some great insight in this episode. Let's get after it. Chip Clark, welcome to the Coaches Edge podcast. Thank you for joining us. Man, Steve, it is so great to be here. I'm excited. I'm pumped up. I'm ready to go. It is not often that, uh, that officials and referees get invited to speak to coaches on a podcast. So, man, I am pumped. I'm ready to go. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, and I, I love the show already. I love the podcast. Been able to listen to a few episodes. You're doing a great job. Keep up the good work, man. And I, I, uh, I'm excited to be here tonight. So thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate it. You're going to add great insight to all of the coaches that listen to college and high school coaches that listen to our podcast. Uh, you are definitely uh, blessing us with your time as I have a lot of questions that I'm pretty sure there's a lot of coaches out there that are going to be uh, taking notes from some of these things that I have for you. So um, let's get started right away. You're, you're a certified high school and college official. And one of the biggest questions that I have for you is how as a coach and as a player, we can communicate effectively with officials during a game. Can you expand upon how we can go about that process? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great question to start out with. Um, one of the biggest things that um, I'm an advocate for is improving uh, coach-ref relations. Um, the way we communicate with each other, um, I mean, during the game, when emotions are running high. I mean, Steve, you know this better than anybody. Basketball is an emotional game, right? It's an emotional game. Tensions rise high. There's ebbs, there's flows, there's ups, there's downs, there's momentum. The crowd's getting into it. And one plays, everybody goes nuts. You know, there's a lot of emotion in the game of basketball. And one of the most challenging things for me when I started officiating, because I'm this outgoing guy, I'm energetic, I'm emotional. Um, one of the most difficult things for me was, when the emotions rise in the building, officials' emotions have to stay even keel. And that was very difficult for me. And you know, unfortunately, there's a few times that, and, and there is, there's a reason I'm starting off with this, talking about my perspective on it first, about how we can do better as officials, because that goes into, that's a big part of it. Um, a big part of carrying on a respectful conversation with someone, especially when emotions are high, is being able to stay even keel. And, and I think officials everywhere could do a better job of that. That's certainly something that I'm continuing to try to grow in as well. So when those emotions go high, officials have to stay even keel. Um, you ask the question, you know, what's the best way for a coach to handle or question a call? Um, well, it's interesting that you said question um, in that question because that's exactly what we want. As long as they do it respectfully, the short answer is respectfully. Um, you know, my dad taught me a long time when I was growing up, the golden rule is treat others the way that you want to be treated. And as an official, I want to make sure that I do that in every single interaction that I have with the coach. If I wouldn't say, if I wouldn't bark back at them and react on the street, if they were just talking to me, I'm not going to do it here in the gym, you know? 
And, and I think coaches, that's something that as if you're an approaching, if you're approaching an official about a call, I get it, man. Emotions are high. You just got a call that did not go against or that went, went against you and did not go your way. If I was a coach, I would be the same way that many of you are, you know, and I would be wanting to question it. I'd be wanting to, to find out what the heck is going on, Mr. Official. Um, but if you, if you approach us respectfully um, and ask a question, um, we tell people all the time and, and coaches that are listening have probably heard it in their pregame meetings with the officials. We, we don't respond to comments. We respond to questions. I, I always tell coaches in my pregame meeting, hey, listen, me and my crew were very approachable. We will absolutely be happy to answer your question at the appropriate time. So that's, that's one thing. Just make sure you approach us at an appropriate time where we're actually able to give you an answer because that's what we want to do. We want to help the game go, go more smoothly. And any way that we can do that, we're going to try to take advantage of that. And that includes answering a legitimate question that you have about what you just saw on the court um, that can help you coach your kids better and maybe not have that call go against you in the future. Does that make sense? No, that's, so, that's great stuff. You're talking yeah, appropriate time and approaching with a question instead of a comment like, hey, you really screwed up that call. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. And, and something to, yeah, yeah. And something to remember is, is um, you know, when – when officials feel like um, it, it's never great for a coach when an official feels like you're attacking our integrity. Um, so for instance, uh, one of the things that's just, it's my pet peeve, but I don't let it show. But my biggest pet peeve in, in basketball games is when a, a coach, even if they question it, if they pose it as a question, it still gets on my nerves because they say, what, look at the foul count. What are you going to do about the foul count or what's going on with the foul count? You know, whenever they question the foul count, it makes me feel like they're questioning my integrity. Like, like I'm legitimately trying to favor one team over the other or that my crew is doing that, you know? And so, and I understand the question you, when I'm watching my favorite basketball team play, I'm like, Oh my gosh, the freaking foul count, you know? <laughs> um, so I understand it. I get it. I have empathy. Um, but that's one of the things it's like, if you, if we feel like you're questioning our integrity, um, we're not going to give you the best – the chances of you getting a better answer or a legitimate answer to your question goes down exponentially. Um, I will say this. There's, a, there's this book out um, that I really enjoyed reading, and I would recommend it to coaches as well, but it really hits home with officials. Um, and it talks – it's, it's uh, the book Verbal Judo. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Uh, George Thompson and, um, gosh, Jerry Jenkins co-wrote this book called Verbal Judo, The Gentle Art of Persuasion. And, and they talk in the book, and I heard Jerry talking on uh, a ref podcast recently about the book, about verbal judo. And um, he talks about how empathy is the most powerful word in the English language, being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. So when I make a call on the court that I know a coach is going to get hot and heavy about, but I feel is legitimately the right call to make, um, whether it's a foul or whatever. If it's a foul, I'll go report the foul. If a coach tries to talk to me while I'm reporting the foul, I'll just put my hand up and say, I'll be right with you, coach. And then I'll go ahead and report the foul. You know, white 23 push, and, you know, two shots. All right, coach, what can I do for you? And then I'll immediately try to put myself in them sh their shoes because I know the game is on the line. I do not want to have to make that call, but I have to, you know. And so any question that they approach me with um, in a heated situation, I always try to remind myself, if I was the coach, how would I be reacting right now? And I think the more that officials can do that, um, the better chance it is to improve our relationship with the coaches, um, the better chance, um, I have to say this part, the better chance for us to respond rather than to react. 
Right. They talk about that in verbal judo in the book about responding rather than reacting. Now we, we incorporate that as officials on plays that we watch while we're doing the, or during the game, we would rather respond to a play than react to it. When you react to a play on the court, I mean, it's, it's full of emotion. You know what I mean? It's like, Hey, I just thought, I thought that looked ugly, you know? And so I'm just going to hurry and, and call the foul. That's a reaction. If you let the play start, develop and finish, and you see it, you're able to digest it real quick, then boom, if you have something, then you've, you're responding to the situation. Same thing when you're talking with coaches or when coaches are talking with officials. Um, reaction is always less than response. So re- if you can respond to something that happened rather than react, that is always going to improve the dialogue between two parties. Um, when you react, it's full of emotion, right? Sure. Um, yeah, I yeah. think they say uh, in the book, when you react, the event controls you. And when you respond, you're in control. So that that's something a lot to remember. Like being a player or being a player or a coach, um, which, which brings me into my next question, which is right in the same kind of line. But how do you handle the interaction between as an official and the player who's now trying to communicate with you during the game? Uh, most of the talking that I do with a player while I'm on the court is, is, uh, is talking them out of a certain situation. So it's while the, the ball is live, the play is going on, and I'm talking to them. Let's say I'm the lead official. I'm working the inline, okay? Um, I'm the lead official, and I see two post players battling it out. Uh, I see a, the offensive player trying to post up, but he's doing it incorrectly. He's, he's using the arm bar, straight arm, trying to ward off the defender. Hey, arms up, arms up, 23, arms up. Uh, post up right, post up right. Get out of the paint. Get out of the paint. I'm trying to talk official, or I'm trying to talk players out of certain things while the game's going on. I don't do a lot of communicating with players uh, at the high school level, especially um, about plays, about specific plays. I'll talk to the captains in high school, and I tell them in pregame meeting, captains, you're the floor generals. If you have a question about something, as long as you approach us respectfully, man, I'm happy to answer your question real quick but we're not going to have a lot of dialogue going on between us on the court, you know? And so, but if there's something, a situation where we're about to shoot free throws and I've noticed these two players have been battling it out. um, I'll walk up to both of them and say, man, Hey, listen, great energy from both of you. You're both really fighting, trying to get position. Um, Just make sure you do it legally. Okay. Make sure you're legal um, on this. And so, uh, and I'll talk to him about that. So hopefully we can keep the game flowing. We don't have a lot of stoppage because I know if there's one thing coaches hate, um, almost more than anything, it is a ton of stoppages in their game where they sure. can't get in any rhythm. The whistle's being blown all the time. That is just a big, I mean, literally, it's a big headache for coaches. And we know that. And, uh, but it's not, it doesn't mean we're going to pass on stuff that we should get. Um, it just means, hey, listen, maybe we could do a better job as officials of communicating with these players so that these things do not occur. Also, part of that is, if I, this is just something personally for me, if I know that a team's uh, best player or a starter, let's just say a starter, is in foul trouble. You know, um, during a foul or whatever, during a free throw, I'll go up and talk to him and say, this is what you're doing. This is what's getting you fouled. We don't want to foul you out, man. We don't. Um, here's how you can improve. Make sure you, make sure you keep your hands to yourself. Uh, don't keep your hand on them longer than, you know, a second. So just being able to talk them out of situations because I know that's a big headache for coaches too. They don't want their best mm-hmm. players in foul trouble. You know? Communication is a an underlying key in all the podcasts that we've we've done. Effective communication that's goes great. certainly a long, a long way. Now, the college, the high school, the overall landscape of basketball continues to change. 
how have officials adapted to some of these changes in recent years? Well, goodness, you, you, the game is sped up so much, man. Um, the game is sped up so much. You have a lot of outside shooting now. Um, the high school level, now I can only speak for Florida because I, I officiate in Florida for the most part. So the athletes that we have down here are just studs, man. I mean, girls and guys, like they're faster. Or they're, I don't want to say faster. They're, just, they're fast. They do a lot of run and gun. They're just incredible athletes. And, and I can only speak for Florida. I know there's great athletes all over. Um, but th- it's so fast. The game has changed. There's a lot of threes going up. Um, just high energy, high pace. So that's something that we've had to adjust to. You have a lot of fast breaks. Well, you know, used to officials would, you know, be of the mindset, I got to get to my spot. You know, I don't want to get beat. Um, well, the truth of the matter is these days, it doesn't matter if you're a young gun and in shape like me. I'm just kidding. I'm not in shape. <laughs> but you're going to get beat multiple times in a game. It's going to happen. And it happens, it happens from time to time. So one of the things, we used to try to get to the end line quick on a fast break if we're the lead official. And now, instead of that, when we see that there could be a potential collision at the basket or somebody's going up for a layup on a fast break and they've beaten us, we just go ahead and pull up in that spot and, and make sure that we focus on the action that's going on. So we're not jogging. We're not still running and sprinting while we're trying to watch. We just give it our undivided attention, stop in that spot and try to find the best angle. Angles have been something that, that officiating is really, or as the game has changed, just making sure we have the correct angles on plays is something that's a big focus for us. Um, but I'll, I'll say this, outside of the, the game itself, um, officiating, the way it's changed over the last 10 or so years is just like coaching, there is a lot more resources available to us to be able for training, you know? And so there's podcasts now for referees, which was unheard of a while ago. You know, <laughs> there's, uh, um, you have NBA officials that are dedicating their free time to help train younger officials by way of online platforms, their websites where they post thousands of plays, um, you can go search these plays. And I, I joined RefQuest, uh, Deep Dive Ref, all these, all these different things where I can literally go. And if I click, tra- if I type in traveling, I can literally look at thousands of traveling plays, different plays, and literally train myself to be able to, to identify the pivot foot. You know, so the resources are, are amazing. There's different things that we are learning now that we weren't able to learn 10 years ago. And it's the same in the coaching community too. I mean, heck, times are changing. And even the current time we're living in has forced a lot of people to adapt and, and to improve the way they communicate with people um, via online platforms. So there's a lot of things that have changed that way. But I would say the increased um, emphasis on the way the game has changed to now, our increased emphasis on, on specific things like finding the pivot foot or freedom of movement. Um, you know, making sure we protect uh, players' freedom of movement. Um, make sure we focus on an advantage player, a disadvantage player. Does it put this? Does this contact put a player at a disadvantage? If so, it's probably going to be a foul. You know, so focusing on focusing on the advantage versus disadvantage. Um, protecting airborne shooters is another thing too. Since there's so many threes going up, a lot of our focus has been to, hey, listen, let's go ahead and um, if you're the trail official and somebody's going to be in a catch and shoot situation, right? They receive the pass and they're about to rise up. We officiate from the floor up. We got to find their feet first, make sure we establish the pivot foot. Um, then when they rise, we go up with them. Our eyes go up with them. We watch as the defender's coming in. We watch for any contact in the middle um, from their arm and up. We see the release. And then we immediately go back down to watch them land on the floor and make sure that they have 
um, a place to land. So there's different aspects of the game that used to really not, not really have a lot of focus. Um, but now that it's more run and gun, there's a lot more threes coming up. Um, the, the athletes are getting bigger and faster and stronger. Those are just a few of the ways that we, we point our emphasis. This is fantastic. I, I trust you to, uh, to official any of, any of my games. This is, this well, is listen, stuff. you have to watch me work first. Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Send me some film. Send me Send some, some film. film. <laughs> um, so along the lines of what you've, you've just mentioned, what are some of the most commonly misunderstood rules that coaches and players alike have trouble with? That's a really good question. Um, there's a few obvious ones that stick out that I want to first say that um, I've seen a lot improve, of, of improvement from coaches these days that are using these words less and less um, on specific plays. But a commonly misunderstood rule um, is over the back. There's no such thing as over the back. And a lot of coaches are starting to realize that now. And they'll change their the way they approach us about a call that used to be – they used to scream, over the back, over the back, row. And now they'll change it because they understand what, by rule, jumping over somebody's back is, is legal, you know, in and of itself. Um, we're not going to penalize a player for being tall, right? We're not going to penalize them for having outstanding leaping ability and being able to jump higher than the inside opponent who's jumping up for the rebound as well, right? We're not going to penalize them for that. Where the legality comes into question is not when they're, if they're over the back and reaching over the back. It comes into question where whether they displace that other rebounder. If they displace them, if their contact that they cause and they initiate on that opponent displaces them, that is what we're looking for. So therefore, if they displace them, that would be a push, not over the back, it doesn't exist. So that would be a push. Um, also, with um, rebounding action like that, if they're going up for a rebound, um, if, if that, contact puts the player at a disadvantage their opponent at a disadvantage because of the contact that it caused then that's going to be a foul right does that make sense so that's something that's one that's commonly misunderstood there's no such thing as over the back it would be a push and it has everything to do with displacing the defender and putting him at a disadvantage same thing with um the reach hey ref that's a reach that's a reach well guys guess what you you can reach you know what? You, you can reach to steal the ball. In fact, if you're not teaching your players to reach correctly, then you're missing a great opportunity. You know what I mean? Because in the, the rule and the, the exact rule itself, and I have to say this, if I, if I was a coach, um, one thing I could challenge you guys to do um, as coaches is do a deep dive into, let's say you're a high school official, the NFHS rule book, rule 10-7, all right? Study it with your players, all right? Rule 10-7 deals with contact. All right. And and you can use this to your advantage. Com coaches are always looking for a competitive advantage. Right. If I if I was a coach, I would be looking for the competitive advantage. They scout teams. They watch film on other teams. Um, they train their their players on how to, to go against a specific type of zone defense or man to man. So, so use the rules as your competitive advantage. The more you know, the more you'll be able to grow. And so if you're able to. Um, learn Rule 10-7 and have your players digest that. It deals with contact specifically. So when we get back to the reach, Rule 10-7-3 deals with a defender um, that is using their hand or arm um, to inhibit the freedom of movement of their opponent. If they use the hand or arm on an opponent to inhibit the freedom of movement of an opponent, that is a 10-7-3 foul. That is a, a contact foul. And it's either going to be a hit, a hold, or a push right? Because they use their hand or their arm. So that 
that is on the defense. But the good news is there's no such thing as a reach. In fact, two articles later in that same rule, in Rule 1075, it actually gives somebody who's reaching for the ball protection. The lingo that it uses there in that rule is attacking the ball. All right. And the protection that, the, that you get is this. You get the protection of a dribbler is, is not able to, must not ward off or use their hand or forearm, all right, to, um, to keep someone from attacking the ball, all right? Um, to pre- the actual word is to prevent them from attacking the ball. So you actually have special protections. Attack the ball. If I was a coach, guys, attack the ball. Go get it. It's your ball, all right? Reach if you have to. But let's make sure we're smart about it. Let's make sure that we don't use any illegal contact um, that would get us in trouble or get us a foul called. But listen, attack the ball, reach if you want. That's legal. Um, So there is no such thing as a reach. Uh, Those are a couple of the ones that are just off the top. I would say another one real quick is backcourt violation is a tough one. That one's tricky for for, uh, officials sometimes too. (laughs) And that's a difference in the college game, men's college game and high school rules. Um, There's some differences there, but I'd say this quick about the backcourt violation. It is all about just a couple of things, player location and status and ball location and status. I got to tell a quick story if we have time. Please do. Um, Please do. One of my games at the very beginning of this year, gosh, I w- it was not videotaped, and it's one of the only games I wasn't able to watch of myself um, this year as I was, I was uh, kind of breaking down my film. But I wish it was because I could use these three specific plays as a training tool for our officials in our local association. But three almost identical plays, all right? And they all had to do with the dribbler, all right? Um, offensive player, it's actually, we're at, we're at a gym, packed house. The home team is the defense in all three scenarios. Um, the opponent is dribbling up the court, right? I'm the trail official. I've got my, in high school, you have to have your visible 10-second count going in the backcourt, all right? So player, first time, player dribbles up, the opponent dribbles up. He gets two feet across half court into the front court, completely into the front court. And he is dribbling the ball and the ball is touching in the back court. All right. This defense had had a half court trap on. They picked him up full court man to man, but they ran down, but their, their goal was to trap and do a half court trap. The guy had, I mean, man, he, he did great defense, forced him right into the trap. He's dribbling in the back court with both feet in the front court. They put the trap on the, the dribbler dribbles back into the back court both feet come back into the backcourt and he dribbles around his opponent and goes into the front court. I mean, holy cow, that gym. Backcourt, ref, backcourt. The coach is going nuts. Everybody's going nuts. Same thing happens again about 30 seconds later, like next possession. This time, the ball is in the front court. His right foot is in the front court. And his back foot is completely, or his left foot is completely in the backcourt. Same thing. They put the trap on. He turns around, dribbles out of it all the way into the backcourt and dribbles out of it, right? court ref they're going nuts Steve I mean going nuts um and so then the third time comes up and this one was the most egregious so he dribbles balls in the front court right foot's in the front court and the left foot is on the division line Mm -hmm. on the division line which as we know by rule is part of the back court the division line is not part of the front court it's part of the back court and then he does the same thing and he dribbles around well this time everybody's screaming back court back court so when I blow my whistle to stop play, everybody's like, finally, guess what I called? I called a 10-second violation because he never achieved front court status in any one of those plays, not a single one of them. And I called a 10-second violation because we keep our count going until they achieve front court status, right? 
a front court status from a dribbler dribbling from backcourt to frontcourt requires all three points be in the front court, both feet and the ball. Until you have both feet and the ball in the front court, you still have backcourt status. You can turn around and dribble all the way back to the free throw line if you want. So, I've seen this improve so much at the college level watching in the past year. Um, I have not seen it carry over a whole lot at the high school level yet because yeah. it's still called backcourt a lot. But there's definitely some, some progress with, with that one. Yeah, that was a tough – it's a tough one. And, and, you know, even with when you've already achieved front court status and uh, the biggest difference in college and high school on this particular rule is when a pass by the offense is deflected by the, def- the defense towards the backcourt. And in high school, it, if the ball touches you – if the offense is the last to touch the ball or have the ball touch them before it goes into the backcourt, they cannot retreat – they cannot be the first to retrieve it. In college, that's different in men's right. college basketball. So even if you're the last person to touch it, um, you're, you can still be the first one to pick it up in the backcourt if it's a deflected pass. So that's just one of those other ones that are just, I mean, it's, it's hard to, to understand unless you really, really know the rule. Um, the other one would be verticality, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, you hear straight up all the time. Oh, he was straight up, Ref. He was straight up. Well, yeah, he was straight up, Coach. He really was. But he jumped from point A to point B. He didn't stay within his vertical plane, and he initiated contact. So even though his hands are straight up in the air, it looks like straight up, but it wasn't. So um, that's another one that's kind of misunderstood is just because they're straight up, teach your kids to go straight up in their vertical plane. If they leave their vertical plane and initiate contact, that's going to be a verticality foul. So while we're on this topic, let's, let's keep it going with a few calls and, and rules. This is great stuff. The block charge is the most confusing rule in basketball, all right? At least, at least for me. When I'm watching a <laughs> basketball game and they just called a charge and then I felt like I saw the exact same thing and then they called a, a block, I feel like I understand the rule and I, I, I'm still confused watching the game. Can you explain what you're looking for as far as what constitutes a block or a charge? I'd be happy to, Steve. This is my, I love this. These are, you're hitting me with some great questions. And I think a lot of coaches are going to be interested in this response to see it from the ref's perspective. You know, here's a couple of things we look at in block charge scenarios. A lot of block charge situations start with a fast break. All right. Not all the time, but some of them. Um, And like I mentioned earlier, being in the correct position to make the call is, is the number one thing. All right. So we're going to want to officiate the closest defender. We try to do that in the front court as well. Even if it's front court, um, they're running a play. If in your position, officiate the closest defender. That's going to be, especially if it's a competitive matchup, right? Well, you want to be able to pick up the closest defender and, and for the lead official in transition who's getting down to the end line, um, that would be the secondary offender, defender most of the time. Now, here's what we're going to look for. I mentioned earlier, start, develop, finish. One of the key principles for officials to understand in block charge situations, slow the game down. It's a big, fast play that gets everybody heated. Everybody's on the edge of their seat waiting for this call. You, won't, you don't want to delay too much, but let the play start, develop, and finish so you can respond to the play and not react. So here's what you do. You find the closest defender, the one who's about to absorb the contact or initiate the contact, whatever. You want, you're going to pick up. If they are a legal in legal guarding position, we call it LGP. All right. Now, as most of you coaches know now, um, legal guarding position to achieve legal guarding position and obtain it. All right. 
you, there's two criteria. You have to have both feet on the floor with your torso or facing the tor or with your torso facing the opponent. So to obtain legal guarding position, both feet on the floor, torso facing the opponent. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we're looking for legal guarding position. Did they first obtain it? After they obtained it, did they maintain it? All right. And here's how you maintain it. A lot of coaches sometimes will, and, and this isn't a knock, this is just the way it looks and how it was called for so long, right? Oh, he was moving, he was moving. You know, that's one of the, the first responses that is elicited when you call a block on their, or a charge on the player, their player. Oh, the defender was moving, he was moving. Well, coach, he can move. By rule, he can move. Um, after he's obtained legal guarding position, we're looking to see if he maintained it. And notice, I'm focusing all of my attention right now and all of this talk on the defender. That's important because block charge plays could be very, very difficult if you focus on the offensive player. They're less difficult if you focus on the defender because the, the criteria for finding out whether or not it was a block charge has everything to do with if that defender obtained and maintained legal guarding position through the duration of the play, okay? So we're letting the play start, develop, finish. I've already picked up the closest defender. I'm watching him. I'm getting to myself in a great angle. I'm going to let the play start, develop, finish. Defender, both feet on the floor facing the, the opponent. Yes, check. He's got that or she's got that. Um, and then the next thing, did they maintain it? Here's how you maintain legal guarding position by rule. Once you've obtained it, to maintain it, you can either, you can either move laterally, obliquely, or vertically, right? You can move laterally, obliquely, and vertically to, to maintain your legal guarding position. The only thing you cannot do is move into the opponent the dribbler. All right. So now that we've got that, they, did they obtain it? Both feet on the floor, torso facing the opponent. Did they maintain it? Did they move when they were moving? Did they move laterally, obliquely, um, and vertically in, in a legal position and maintain that? Or did they uh, move into the opponent? Right. So those are things that we look for. Um, and then another part of this is a lot of times these block charge plays, Steve, are no calls and we put a whistle on it anyway just because everybody thinks it should be a whistle. Remember, going back to what I said earlier, advantage, disadvantage, all right? If that offensive player kind of charges into that legal defender and he goes up for a shot and he grazes his shoulder or something and it does not displace the defender or knock them back or put them in a disadvantageous position and then he shoots the shot and it misses and it's an easy rebound for the defense, let's play on. There's no reason to put a whistle on that and stop play. They've already, the, the opponent already got the ball. It didn't create a disadvantage for the defender. Now, if he misses that shot and the other team gets the rebound and it was egregious enough contact, then we're going to put a whistle on that, all right? So that's just, that's kind of what we think about when uh, um, we're watching for block charge plays because they were very difficult. Um, and sometimes they're 50-50. A lot of officials say there's no such thing as a 50-50 block charge. It's either 51% or 49%. Um, so there's no such thing as that perfect like in the middle ground um but but it really is a bang bang play and if you do not know what to look for you can get caught and you don't you hate to be caught um that's that's what we look for um now if you see somebody duck their head and charge into a defender that's an obvious charge if you see a defender just take it or or you see them move into an opponent the dribbler that's an easy one to call the ones where they're just, they're standing still and they kind of, now when the, the shooter becomes airborne, when he leaves the floor, that is the only difference in what I just told you. So 
he is not allowed to move under an airborne shooter. All right. So you've obtained legal guarding position. You've maintained it. Now he's going up for the shot on your right shoulder. Okay. He's going up for the shot on your right shoulder. If he becomes airborne, as soon as his feet leave the ground, if you move even slightly under him, that's you initiating contact on an airborne shooter. You're going to get called for that every time, or you should be. <laughs> so that's kind of the things that we look for in just a, a tough scenario. We, we have to make the most of it. We got to do the best that we can. And those are tips and tricks that help us to be able to identify legality of the defender. And we focus all of our attention on the defender in that case. So if I am an airborne offensive player, I'm, I'm in the air, I am initiating the contact. The defensive player has gone straight up, and now they're, they're in the air. I initiate the contact with my shoulder. There's clear contact, and then I go up and take the shot. What's the call? Just because there's clear contact, and this is kind of a, a topic of discussion, um, and it's one of those that's kind of iffy. Just because there's contact doesn't mean there's a foul. All right? And, and I'd go back to advantage-disadvantage. Um, if, the, if it puts the defender at a disadvantage, we need to call that. We really do. Um, if it displaces the defender, we need to call that. Um, so there's, there's, there's a certain thing where on that play, a player goes up, becomes an airborne shooter. They charge into, in the air, um, they charge into a, a legal defender who's got verticality. They're within their vertical plane. They did not jump A to B. Um, they're within their vertical plane. It hits them in their chest, and they kind of go back a little bit because they're obviously going to go back, right? On those where the, the defender is airborne, there's a greater chance that we are going to call a foul on those than if they were on the, on the floor because they did kind of technically get displaced. But we look to see if they're disadvantaged. And if there wasn't a ton of contact, then we're probably going to let that go. Well, I would. So, I mean, other people might see that differently. I'm not, I'm definitely not the end all be all on, uh, on officials. So, um, but I would, I would let that go because I, anytime I can avoid stopping the game for an unnecessary reason, um, I, I try to do that. So I, I don't want to stop the game for an un, unnecessary reason. Well, I appreciate you doing that. Now the, no, thanks. Now the, now the next question <laughs> is again, another big one and it's traveling. Can you touch on traveling off the catch and traveling off the pickup predominantly on the pickup going into the finish? What are some of the things that you're really looking for so that as coaches, we can make sure our players aren't doing those things? Absolutely. Great question, man. You're hitting the big ones. Traveling violation on the catch. Let's start with that one, like you mentioned. On the catch, the importance um, of I cannot understate the importance of the official identifying the pivot foot as quickly as possible. All right. On the catch, you're receiving the pass. The first thing the official should be looking at is your feet. When you receive that pass, we should be looking at the feet. As soon as one of those feet move and is lifted, the other one is the pivot foot. All right. Every single thing in the high school game around the traveling violation, everything hinges on the pivot foot in high school and college. We've got to ID the pivot foot, and, and even in pros, um, to be honest with you, but they have the gather step and the zero step and all that stuff. So <clears throat> everything in high school and college hinges on the pivot foot. We have to ID that as quickly as possible. Um, once we ID that, it's very simple. If the, on the catch anyway, as soon as they move one foot, let's say they do a jab, a jab step or whatever, well, the, the foot that they did not jab with is their pivot foot, obviously. And as soon as that, if they start a dribble, here's the two different differences. 
if they're going to start a dribble out of that and the left foot is their pivot foot, they must release the ball from their hand to start their dribble before the left foot, which is the pivot foot, comes up from the ground. All right. Before they move that pivot foot off the ground, they have to have already released the ball for the, or for the dribble. Okay. That's very important. If they are passing or shoot, or if they're passing, let's say passing would probably be the predominant thing they do out of this catch. Um, so they've already jab stepped. Um, if they're going to pass, they're allowed to lift their pivot foot or if they're going to make a play at the basket, right? They're allowed to lift that pivot foot, the left foot in this case, as long as it does not return to the floor, we're good. There's no traveling violation. As soon as they pick that pivot foot up and put it down to the ground, then that is when we have a traveling violation. So can I make sure I understand this properly? Yes. This is good stuff. If I have the basketball and I'm jabbing with my right foot and my left foot is down, so my left foot is the pivot foot, and I decide I'm going to reverse the basketball from, you know, the left wing back to the top of the key. And so I'm jabbing with my right foot, so I step to make the pass with my right foot. And as I'm getting ready to make that pass, I can pick up my left foot. And let's say my left foot is in the air, in the air, and I'm stepping all the way forward, but it hasn't touched the floor. I release the pass, then it touches the floor. Perfectly legal. Perfectly legal, 100%. That is a legal basketball play. So I can take almost two steps before I actually make that pass. That's the key. I'm so glad you said that because you hear so many times, or you've heard in the past, coaches or, or fans especially, oh, he took two steps. Why is that a travel or this, that, and the other? Technically, two steps is a travel. Um, and you said he just he he took under just under two steps. Absolutely. If he does that, it's legal because that means the pivot foot has not returned to the floor yet. So the play you just described, hundred percent legal basketball play. You're looking at the you're looking at the guy who would go to the referees, you know, and and pick their brain about what was actually legal. So I yes. can make sure I knew how much I could get away with in a game. Smart. I was one of, I was one of those guys. That's so. that's so smart, Steve. Now, now I have to address this. Attack. Let's say we're attacking the basket with a travel, right? Or, or we're talking about the traveling violation. What was the other question you asked about traveling on the what catch and then on on the pickup going to the finish? Okay. There's, okay. Perfect. There's a lot of, you know, and, and especially some of the things that you can do overseas, a little different than what we could do in the U.S. Especially at the high school and the college level. I want to make sure we're we're teaching our kids what we nor the rules, not necessarily what we see, right? And so what are, from a referee, what are you looking for as I'm a player going to the basket and you decide whether I traveled or not? In every, and I'll say this, in every single question that regards a traveling violation and what we look for, if our answer is not pivot foot first on every scenario, then we're doing it wrong. It's always the pivot foot. Everything hinges on the pivot foot. Now, when you're making a move to the basket, a lot of one of my biggest pet peeves, and I actually pregame this with my officials and my crew, whoever I'm working with that given night, we talk about it because the last thing I want is my crew or our crew out there to be calling a ton of traveling violations that never happened. It's a bad look. Um, now I mentioned earlier about contact and how just because it's ugly doesn't mean that it's actually a foul. The same thing with the travel. It could be very, very ugly and still be a perfectly legal basketball play. Just because it's ugly does not mean it's a travel. With that being said, there's some really smooth, clean 
You, you talked earlier about the block charge being one of the diff, most difficult plays. I, if you find me one of the, I would say this. Most every official I've talked to agrees with me that the traveling violation is the toughest call to make. It's so hard at game speed, especially with the way that people are moving as quick as they're moving these days. It's so hard to identify the pivot foot unless you are trained to look at it. That's why I watch thousands, literally thousands of basketball plays every single day is to train my mind to be able to ID the pivot foot, right? During basketball season, I'll watch, I'll watch 100 traveling plays um, before I go out to my game just to be able to, to – and, and it's something to train your mind. So you're driving to the basket. As soon as everything – when you're driving to the basket, a dribbler, right? So we've got to ID the pivot foot. The way we have to do that, though, and the reason why it's so tough on a dribbler is for this very reason. We, they cannot ID a, we cannot ID a pivot foot, and a pivot foot doesn't exist until they end their dribble. If they don't end their dribble, then there is no pivot foot. If they're still dribbling, you can't have a pivot foot, right? So <laughs> you have to wait until they end their dribble to be able to look at their feet real quick and see – and, and so being able to train your mind to see those two things at the same time is very, very challenging unless you know what to look for, right? So driving to the basket, as soon as they end their dribble, which we know in high school, I know you probably have a lot of high school coaches listening to this, we know when it's when the ball comes to rest in your hand. It doesn't say hands. That's NBA. That's, that's two hands, right? Most of the time it's two hands, right? Or if it comes to your palm, yeah. So if they have the ball come to rest in their hand on the side of like on the side of their hand where they got it just barely under the basketball, they just ended their dribble. If they grab it with two hands, they, they clearly ended their dribble. Um, if they trap it against their side, they just ended their dribble. Right. So whenever the dribble has been ended, we have to immediately look to their feet to see which one is the pivot foot. If they're driving from the right side and they end their dribble to do a Euro step, right. And they end their dribble, right here with their right foot still on the floor and their left foot in the air and they jump off that and then they do the left on the floor to do the Euro step and then jump back up. If they do not release that ball before the pivot foot comes back down on the floor, then it's a traveling violation. The ball has to be released on the try before the pivot foot comes back down and touches the floor or we've got a traveling violation. That makes sense. Now let's, let's talk about a two foot, a two foot finish. So if I drive to the basket and I take a big jump stop, or maybe if it's a pro hop where I, I change direction, but I landed on two feet and I picked the basketball up. I, I got my foundation, jump stop, traditional, everybody knows what a jump stop is, okay? Now, I start to pivot, okay? What can I get away with? Because my, my thing is, and it depends, because I'm working with players from different states and different levels. and so I always try to say it may not be what is actually legal or not. The most important thing is what are they going to call or not? That's what I'm trying to teach my players. Okay. I'm side note. I get so sick of, uh, and you've probably seen us on Twitter or Instagram of, is this a travel? Is this a travel? Yes. I don't care all the if it's a travel or not. <laughs> right. If it, <laughs> if it looks like a travel, even if it's not, do I really want my players to, to risk that because you think it looks right uh, anyway so if i pro hop i've landed on two feet and i begin my pivot foot okay 
this is a conversation I've had with multiple high school officials. I've gotten different answers. So that's why I'm asking you this one. I'm sure. Yeah. So, I'm sure you have. I'm, so here's what I'm going to do. Or, or go ahead. Go ahead. Finish your question. So I, I jump stop. I begin pivoting. I jump off. So you've, already ended, you've already ended your dribble. I've, I've ended my dribble. Correct. While you're moving? Because that's important. So you you were not standing dribbling. You were move, you were dribbling towards the basket. You jump. You ended. Did you end your dribble and jump off one foot, and then land on both feet, or did you jump off one foot, then end your dribble, and then land on both feet? Because that's important. That's a great question. So the situation that I'm talking about is, I didn't pick my dribble up until, or I didn't even start to pick my dribble up until I was already in the air. I put two hands on it, then I landed to the ground. Okay. Now I start to pivot. I take the shot jumping off of two feet at the same time. That's one situation. Next okay. situation, I do the same thing. Jump stop. I don't put two hands on. I put two hands on the ball right before both feet have hit the floor. Okay. I begin pivoting. Let's say I pivot off my left foot. So I'm moving my right foot. I now pick my left foot off the ground. I jump in the air. And then I take my shot. Legal in both cases. And here's what I'm going to say. If you land, uh, here's the thing. If you do not end your dribble with one foot on the floor, then I'm, and I'll just quote the rule for you guys. Can I do that? Please the do. NFHS, the NF, NFHS rules. So for high school coaches, the NFHS rule is if both feet are off the floor and the player lands simultaneously on both feet, all right, so a player who catches the ball while moving or dribbling may stop and establish a pivot foot as follows. If they jump off or if both feet are off the floor and the player lands simultaneously on both feet, either foot may be the pivot foot, okay? So then we're back to the same scenario we had earlier, right? You, you identify the pivot foot. If they land – now they have to land simultaneously. That is the tricky part. If they land staggered, all right, then what do we got? Which one's the pivot foot? Let's say right, left, all right? That's what landed, right, left. Which one's the pivot? It's the right, right foot. Yep. It's the first one that landed. Then you can pivot off the right foot. If you try to pivot off the left foot, that's going to be a traveling violation, right? But as long as you land simultaneously on both feet, neither can be a, neither one is the pivot foot until you pick one up, right? <clears throat> um, another thing is, uh, so after coming to a stop and establishing a pivot foot, um, the pivot foot may be lifted. This is Article 3. So if you guys wanted to actually look this up and follow along, it's NFHS rule. 444, Article 3. All right, here's how the pivot foot, uh, a player who catches the ball while moving or dribbling may stop and establish the pivot foot. After coming to a stop and establishing a pivot foot, the pivot foot may be lifted but not returned to the floor before the ball is released on a pass or try for goal. Okay. If a player jumps, neither foot may be returned to the floor before the ball is released on a pass or a try for goal. Okay. And the pivot foot may not be lifted before the ball is released to start the dribble. So it's, it's, it's pretty much the same thing that we were talking about ahead of time on a catch when both feet are on the floor. If you end your dribble in midair and you come down simultaneously, how, who, I don't know which pivot foot, what the pivot foot is until you give me a reason to know what it is. You know? mm -hmm. So that's kind of the thought process behind that. It's a very tricky play, right? And people, I will say this, the reason it's difficult is people have gotten so good I mean, and, and probably because of people like you with player development and teaching these kids how to do it properly and, and other coaches that are listening, um, they've gotten so good at just clean plays. It, it looks so clean, so smooth. Um, 
And if, if we're not careful as officials, we can get suckered into thinking it was a, it was a legal play. And that's why identifying the pivot foot is of utmost importance. That's great. That's fa- fantastic stuff. If, if it looks smooth, you're more likely to get away with it. That's, that uh, is very true. <laughs> that's, that's, that's true. Um, advice for coaches. Advice for coaches that are trying to limit the fouls being called on their team. What advice would you give them? All right, I'm going to try to keep this quick. So they're trying to limit fouls being called on their team. Read NFHS Rule 10-7 with your team about contact. I mentioned it earlier. Do it again. <laughs> Read that and make sure they digest it and understand what is illegal contact. Okay, that would be the thing that I, I can tell you what we look for. All right, with contact. If you want to limit fouls, um, here's what we look for. We're trained to look for the stir principle. First of all, this is with hand checks, right? Stayed hands is the S. If you have stayed hands, you keep a, a hand on them, on the dribbler, we're going to call you for a foul. If you have two hands, that's the T in stir, S-T-I-R. Two hands. If you use your hands to impede the progress or the freedom of movement um, of the dribbler, that's the I. And the R is reroute. If you reroute somebody with your contact, then you're going to be called for a foul. So if you can teach your players and, and train them to be hands-off as much as possible and just really work on their footwork to stay in front of an opponent, that's going to help you tremendously. Um, and there's things that you can use to your advantage in that case too. So the stir principle is something that we use to identify hand checks. Um, and, and the reason I'm focusing on hand checks on this one, Steve, is because there's, there's few things that are more frustrating to a coach than getting called for ticky-tack, quote, fouls. You know, um, ticky-tack fouls kill, man. It, it, it just kills the game. It kills the coach's you know, mindset. Like, they don't – they hate it. You know, why did you call – why did you blow that whistle? He barely even touched it. You know, and I'm like, coach, I get it. I really do. But he impeded the progress and, and the freedom of movement of the, the offensive player, the dribbler. Or he had two hands on him, coach. By rule, that's not, that's not allowed. So that's one thing we look for. Also, another one, you see this play all the time in uh, kind of run-and-gun offenses. Let's say the offensive player, you're on defense. <clears throat> offensive player is dribbling from backcourt to frontcourt, and they're trying to beat their defender, right? And you've got that defender riding him on his side. You've seen that play many times, right? He's all over him. He's riding him. He's riding him. Well, listen, here's the thing. As long as he stays, he doesn't reroute them and stuff like that. And here's what we look for. Does the defender's contact impact their it's, – it's RBSQ, rhythm, balance, speed, or quickness. All right? If it, if it um, impacts the dribbler's rhythm, balance, speed, or quickness, then we're probably going to call a foul because that contact has knocked him off his line. He's allowed to dribble on that straight path. If he doesn't have that straight path and a defender who's not legal is riding him and pushes him off that line, then the defender's responsible for the contact. So I would say if, you're, if you've got defenders that got beat by a half step and they're wanting to try to catch up to him and they're riding him on their side or they've got their forearm on him while they're going down the court, um, you're probably going to get called for a foul. So let's make sure that we stay in front of them if, if at all possible or we have a help defender stepping up to, to stop them uh, when they cross half court. So that's another one. Um, just dig into the, the contact rule um, because I feel like teaching also legal guarding position to your, your team is going to be something that helps tremendously. All right. Um, I, um, when I was in high school, my coach, and I don't know if coaches do this anymore. I don't even know if it's allowed, but I don't know. I don't even know if it was the same for you. So tell me if it was, 
our coach made us practice taking charges every single practice. We would stand there and take charges every single practice. And here's one thing he taught me that has carried over with me to this day. And I would challenge you to maybe share it if you think it's a good idea with your players. Now, I don't know if you can practice taking charges these days in, in practice or not, but, um, but if you can't teach them, when you're taking a charge, and this will help you draw some fouls too, right? And I know that might be another question you have is how can you draw more fouls? Um, I know one of the rules right now that are really irking coaches is the flopping rule in the NCAA men's. Um, and I know in high school, one of the things coaches maybe misunderstand is one of those other misunderstood rules is the fact that if you flop and our terminology in our rule book in high school is faking being fouled. That is a player technical foul, no delay of game warning, nothing. If you fake being fouled in high school, the rule book absolutely gives us the authority to, um, penalize that player with a player technical foul. Um, it's called faking being fouled. So one of the things that we look for is their, the way they fall, okay? If they're trying to take a charge, if they fake being fouled, they're going to land in a seated position with their hands on the floor. It's just natural. If Nobody wants to fake being fouled and throw themselves back where they can injure themselves, right? So my coach taught me in high school when taking a charge, if it doesn't hurt a little bit, you didn't take it right. Every time you take a charge, it should hurt a little bit, at least a little. That means you absolutely stood your ground and you absorbed all of that contact. Now, we want to protect our players, absolutely. I'm not saying don't do that. Um, but what I'm saying is, is in order to draw more fouls, especially in a charging situation, or let's say it's a pass and crash. You've seen those too, right? People, you know, maybe the offensive players dribble on the baseline and you've got your defender who's meeting him when he's coming to the lane, he dishes off, but he's going full speed. He dishes off, and sometimes the defender will turn to, to try to defend the player who's catching and receiving the ball. If I was a coach, I, and I know coaches, a lot of coaches teach this, if I was a coach, I would teach my player, if you know he can't stop, stand there and take it all, man. Take it all. Because that's a pass and crash, and we're going the other way. You just, you just got us the ball back, and we really needed that. We're down by two points, you know. So get us that ball back at all costs. I would say in order to draw more fouls, just, just have them. It's, it may hurt a little bit sometimes. You know, stand there and take it. Um, there's obviously other ways, but I've, I've been rambling on about this, so I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll throw it back to you. But that's just some ways to prevent yourself from or your team from committing more fouls and maybe be able to draw a few more. That's great advice. And no, we did not work on charges a ton in high school. And it came back to bite me. It came back to bite me when I was a college player. Our center was phenomenal at drawing charges. I felt like he was always flopping. He always read at the right time. He always he drew probably a couple of charges every single game. Wow. And for the most part, I got called for blocking fouls, and <laughs> I was hitting the floor. And uh, you know, the anticipation it is something that you need to you need to practice. Is there anything else that, as a coach, we can try to work with our team on to try to get fouled a little more? to get to the free throw line a little bit more, to get that best player on the other team in trouble earlier in the game? Well, I, I, I do hesitate to answer this question in <laughs> any more detail because I'm, I'm of the mindset that as officials, um, <laughs> I mean, I want players to be strategic in, in how they try to draw fouls. But when you talk about drawing fouls, um, the flopping is introduced a lot. you know, and, and when left to the players, they're going to do the head bob and throw their head back or stuff like that, um, especially when it comes to getting to the free throw line, right? I don't know if there's anything that I could say that would be good advice 
that doesn't directly contradict my um, belief system about officiating um, <laughs> that would help you draw more fouls and get to the free throw line more. You know well, what I mean? You answered that. You answered that question correctly. I put you in a tough spot. <laughs> and you you passed the test. Um, I one thing that I did to draw more fouls, and I wish I would have done it earlier in college and high school. But I started yelling when I was driving to the basket and took a shot. So I wasn't going to flop. I wasn't going to flop for two reasons. When I was taking a shot, I didn't want to risk missing the shot because if if you get under control, out of control, it's harder to score. Right. And two, I had some principles. Okay. So I wasn't going <laughs> to act like, you know, I was shot in, in midair, but it wasn't beyond me to yell. So a lot of times, if, if I went to the basket and there was contact, a lot of times I'm going, hey, as I was going up. And surprisingly, I got to the free throw line a lot of times that I shouldn't have because I made a sound like somebody was hitting. That's abs- that's absolutely part of the game. And uh, but I will say this: like hearing you tell an official this is kind of like uh, the way my dad feels when people tell him stories of my childhood that he had no clue about. It's like, oh man, I'm disappointed in you. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> it's like you know, you're just de- you're purposefully trying to deceive us. It's already hard enough, but Sorry I get it. That. It's game. It's gamesmanship. I understand it for sure. Um, yeah, you, you probably can get a couple more calls by doing that. Hopefully you don't get them from me though. So, uh, so <laughs> hopefully I'm focused enough on the action in front of me to, and start develop, finish, let it, let it finish and then digest it and then respond to it on whether or not that, that was a call and not react to your, um, your voice, you know, <laughs> that would be a, that would be a great example of reacting to a call instead of responding to it. And it didn't work all the time, but you know, I was pretty, I was pretty happy with the amount of times that it, it paid off. In my I'm favorite. sure. <laughs> so a couple, couple questions I'll throw at you as we finish out the podcast. In your opinion, is there a rule in basketball in general that you'd like to see changed? Um, I'm, man, I'm the wrong person to ask this question because, and I hate to be a cop out on this, but um. I focus all of my attention on the rules as they're written and making sure that I adjudicate those rules properly in the game for the betterment of the game, the student athletes and the coaches that put so much hard work and effort into playing these games. I want to make sure I serve the game by, you know, officiating a safe and fair contest because these players and coaches deserve it. I focus all of my attention on making sure that the rules that are current, that I make sure I abide by those. So I would probably be, the wrong person to ask about rule changes because I don't, I don't worry about what I can't control, but I will say this one thing. It doesn't have anything to do with gameplay, but I do know coaches, uh, a couple coaches, pet peeves are um, uniform rules in high school. And believe me, I just want to put this PSA out there. There's nothing I hate more than having to, at the start of a game, tell a young man or a young woman, you can't wear that undershirt because it doesn't match the color of your uniform, the torso of your uniform. Like I, I, I hate that. There's nothing that I enjoy about that. And, and, and I will say this coaches, if you want to help us out in any way, not that you think we deserve it being helped out at all, but if you could make sure you understand the uniform rules and make sure that your team abides by that before they take the court, um, that would be very helpful to us because there's nothing we enjoy less than trying to enforce the uniform rule. And I'll also say another one is bench decorum. Um, coaches, 
and I, I was actually discussing this with someone, a, a coach I uh, very much respect on Twitter the other day. It was talking about, I don't understand the infatuation with these officials and um, our players standing up on the bench, standing up and celebrating a good bucket or a dunk by our teammate. They're always telling us to sit down, sit down, sit down. You know, um, I definitely empathize with that view. So I will say that I think that that's something that, you know, if we could change or, or do something about that'd be great. Right now, the rule only allows for um, them to stand up and celebrate their team briefly. And then it says in the rule book verbatim, immediately return to their seat. So if we ask you to sit down or ask your players on the bench to sit down, we may do that for, we're not doing it because we get kicks out of that, right? We're not doing it even necessarily because we think they're in the way. I do it because if I have an observer or one of my evaluators in the stands evaluating me on the game, that could be my ticket to get to the next level. And they see that I don't enforce that rule. They may be up there thinking, what other rule is he going to kick? What other rule is he willing to kick um, so he doesn't have to call it and, and just get away with it? So we do those things, and I hate doing it. So I wish they would change some of that. Um, but as for anything, I, I can't control it, so I don't focus too much time on it. No, I'm not from Florida. Does Florida have a shot clock? We don't have a shot clock. Okay, um, we do not have a shot clock. That I wish, even if it's a, a minute shot clock, just right. to get rid of some of the teams that – and I don't, and I can't even, ex I'm not going to express my opinion necessarily. I wouldn't mind it, but um, with the shot clock violation, or with, not with the shot clock violation, but with the shot clock in general, I see the pros and cons of it. For, and this is a heated debate in the coaching community. <laughs> shot clock or no shot clock, which side do you fall on? Well, I'm kind of in the middle, man. Whatever happens, happens, and we'll be forced to deal with it. I'll, I'll say this. Um, I love having the shot clock in the men's college game when I officiate. Um, I don't think it uh, took too much time and effort for me to pick up the rules on that and be able to adjudicate it properly. Um, but I will say that from a logistical standpoint, I know, especially during this time um, with, with, you know, the current circumstances in the world and maybe some programs don't have as much money to spend on things that they, I know that that might be a problem. Um, logistically having someone to operate the shot clock at every game, that might be a problem as well, having the funds to do it. So, um, I understand both sides of the coins, that, but I will say this. I don't know if you know, but just in the middle of April, the NFHS for high school, their rules committee just met, and the results just came back in a few days ago, and they said we're going to continue to look into it, but as of right now, at the national level for shot clock adoption, they're not going to do it at the national level, and they're not going to allow for states to adopt the shot clock uh, into their rules um, for the upcoming season. So that was just addressed and just came out. So. Um, it's kind and of I read moot, that. Kind of a moot was, point. I was disappointed. I know you were. <laughs> I would have to say I was a little bit too, but uh, I understand both sides of it. Sure, absolutely. Financial th financial aspect of it is maybe the only thing I can get behind regarding, you know, not supporting it. But Chip, you're a big part of United Basketball Clinics. Um, again, I thank you for your time. But you know, before we close out this episode, uh, can you talk a little bit about your United Basketball Leadership podcast and also the clinics that you and Matt Smith run around the United States. Absolutely. And, and first, let me say, um, on behalf of me and Matt and United Basketball Clinics, um, our coaches clinics that we run, I wanted to thank you for being at our, uh, our first annual Hoosier Gym Coaches Clinic and for speaking uh, uh, to us there at that clinic. It was fantastic. And to you coaches out there that haven't attended one of our United Basketball Coaches Clinics yet, 
Um, we would love to have you sometime. And a great one to go to every year um, is the Hoosier Gym Coaches Clinic at the historic Hoosier Gym. It was great to be able to see you present there, Steve. I know that you enjoyed that. And, uh, and I, we certainly enjoyed having you. Um, but, we, but Matt and myself, um, he brought me on board about four years ago when he decided to expand the coaches clinics and be able to do them across the country. And so we try to focus on locations because here's the thing. I immediately agreed to join him on this because even as an official and especially as official, I have a heart for coaches. Um, I, I want to do everything that I can to improve our relations, our relationship between coaches and refs. But also on a side note, I just really want help to help coaches grow. And so it was a natural fit for me to jump on board with Matt and with the expansion, we try to go to different cities that normally don't get a lot of, you know, bigger coaches clinics there, don't get a lot of foot traffic from those, those coaches clinics. So try to go to places like Knightstown, Indiana, at the Hoosier gym, or, you know, sometimes uh, Minnesota, uh, Minnesota, we're looking to go to Cleveland this year, um, Greenville, South Carolina, Charlotte, you know, stuff like that. Um, and then Texas as well. So we're looking at different locations right now, our clinics, we, uh, we're just on hold right now, you know, with the, with the pandemic and everything. Uh, we're going to be putting out information soon, but I will tell you this, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter to keep up with updates, um, because we do, uh, as of right now, we have planned three great coaches clinics. It may only be down to two, or we may not have any based on um, what we're allowed to do. Um, but if you want to follow us on Twitter, it's at United underscore clinics, at United underscore clinics. While you're there, you can also find out a little bit more about our podcast that we just started that Steve mentioned. Uh, we started around the same time as, as uh, Steve started here with the Coach's Edge, and uh, we'd love for you guys to check us out. We released about, you know, between six and ten episodes already, and um, we'd love to have you guys check us out. It's the United Basketball and Leadership Podcast. If you visit us on Twitter or on our website at unitedbasketballclinics.com, You'll be able to find um, information about our podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Anchor. We'd love for you guys to check us out. We want to be able to be of service to coaches in any possible way that we can. Our clinics is evidence of that. And now with the, the Basketball and Leadership Podcast, we, we're trying to bring quality content to you that's going to help you grow and help your players grow as well and your team. So um, we've had some great guests on already. In fact, Steve was on there already. And thank you for being on that. Well, we were honored to have you. And, uh, and again, thanks for having me on tonight. It, this has been fantastic. I could talk rules forever. I'm one of those rules junkies. So um, you probably just have to cut me off, you know? <laughs> Thank you for your time. I will definitely put in the show notes, website, Twitter, where you can find the podcast. It's fantastic. There's a ton of great coaches. It was a privilege for me just to be on the list of some of the coaches and speakers that you've had. And, and I, I appreciate that. And one last thing, if you guys do want to follow me on Twitter um, personally, um, my actual Twitter handle is at official chip C um, official chip and C are capitalized at official chip C. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter to be able to see some uh, good ref content. Now, I'll post awesome. plays from time to time. So that'll be something that you guys can stay engaged with and be able to watch some plays with me and uh, critique some things that you think uh, maybe we missed or we could do better on. And I'd be happy to have you do that. Awesome. Thanks again. And the impact that you guys are making in the basketball world is a great thing. Continue to get after it. Hey, man, you're doing the same thing you do too. And thank you so much for the kind words. And again, thanks for having me on. Coaches, thank you guys. Y'all have a great time. Thank you for listening to the Coaches Edge podcast. If you found this beneficial, could you share it with one other person? And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Coaches 
Edge One. That's a great place to keep up to date on the other tools that we have to help coaches out there, as well as to know when we come out with new podcast episodes. Thanks again and have a great day.